Chapter 22, Religious Worship and the Sabbath Day, Paragraph 1. The light of nature shows that there is a God who has lordship and sovereignty over all, who is just, good, and does good to all, and is therefore to be feared, loved, praised, called upon, trusted in, and served, with all the heart and all the soul and with all the might. But the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself. Not so limit, and so limited by his own revealed will, that he may not be worshipped according to the imagination and devices of men, nor the suggestions of Satan, under any visible representations, or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. Paragraph 2. Religious worship is to be given to God the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit and to him alone, not to angels, saints, or any other creatures, and since the fall, not without a mediator, nor in the mediation of any other but Christ alone. Paragraph 3. Prayer, with thanksgiving, being one part of natural worship, is by God required of all men, But that it may be accepted, it is to be made in the name of the Son by the help of the Spirit, according to his will, with understanding, reverence, humility, fervency, faith, love, and perseverance, and when, with others, in a known tongue. Paragraph 4. Prayer is to be made for things lawful and for all sorts of men living, or that shall live hereafter, but not for the dead nor for those of whom it may be known that they have sinned the sin unto death. Paragraph 5, the reading of the scriptures, preaching and hearing the word of God, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with grace in our hearts to the Lord, as also the administration of baptism and the Lord's Supper, are all parts of religious worship of God, to be performed in obedience to him with understanding, faith, reverence, and godly fear, Moreover, solemn humiliation with fastings and thanksgivings upon special occasions ought to be used in an holy and religious manner. Paragraph 6, neither prayer nor any other part of religious worship is now under the gospel tied, is now under the gospel tied unto or made more acceptable by any place in which it is performed or towards which it is directed. But God is to be worshipped everywhere in spirit and in truth, as in private families daily and in secret each one by himself. So more solemnly in the public assemblies, which are not carelessly nor willfully to be neglected or forsaken, when God by his word of providence calls to it or thereunto. Paragraph 7, as it is the law of nature that in general a proportion of time by God's appointment be set apart for the worship of God, so by his word in a positive, moral, and perpetual commandment, binding all men in all ages, he has particularly appointed one day in seven for a Sabbath, a Shabbat, a rest, to be kept holy unto him, which from the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ was the last day of the week, and from the resurrection of Christ was changed into the first day of the week, which is called the Lord's Day and is to be continued to the end of the world as the Christian Sabbath, the observation of the last day of the week being abolished. Paragraph 8, the Sabbath is then kept holy unto the Lord, 
when men, after a due preparing of their hearts and ordering their common affairs beforehand, do not only observe and holy rest all day from their own works, words, and thoughts about their worldly employment and recreations, but also are taken up the whole time in the public and private exercises of his worship and in the duties of necessity and mercy. So our purpose in this study you know, has not been to exegete each phrase of the confession. That would take years, and that would be valuable, but um, it's better overall to... Uh, take the approach that we're taking and, and spend our time exegeting the scripture you know, as a general rule. But we are taking this time in the confession of faith to, to um, want to familiarize ourselves with it and to see the wisdom and the way these writers uh, took, took doctrines and, and uh, you know, broke them down, if you will, and uh, put them forth in bite-sized pieces so God's people could understand them. So that makes the Confession of Faith very handy, like a handbook, you know, a handy little reference for understanding doctrines. And um, my wife and I were talking about the new exposition of the Confession of Faith, which I recently finished. I I had the job, I mentioned to you, of finding typos, uh, and I found 45 of them uh, in the last few weeks. But um, so... But I, I read it also, enjoying it very much, and was mentioning to my wife last week that uh, it's, a, it's a really nice tool to have. It's, a, it's like a, a bunch of books all together. Uh, you want to get a book on adoption or you want to get a book on justification, you can do that. But, if, but you have this, uh, this nice volume here. You have uh, chapters on each of those, which are very convenient. So here, just to survey the, the eight paragraphs, uh, the first six paragraphs talk about religious worship, and then the last two talk about, talk about the Lord's Day, or the Sabbath, the Lord's Day Sabbath. And in paragraph one, just to, to survey the confession here to start us off, you have... Uh, a tie or a connection to chapter 1, which is the chapter on the scripture, which talks about revelation, rule and revelation. You have a rule by which to live your life uh, based on God's revelation. So, and in paragraph 1, while it talks about light from nature, it shows that we we are limited by the light that we receive from nature even though it's a bright shining light in the language of Psalm 19, there are no words. So it makes the scripture all that more, much more necessary. So we'll come back to that in a moment, of course, but chapter, paragraph two then talks about Trinitarian worship. It's, it's, a, it's just a brief statement, one long sentence, and yet it's critical it's a critical statement that our worship is Trinitarian, and perhaps we don't practice this as much as we should and could, uh, worshiping Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but just speaking generally to God as God, which there's no sin in that, nothing wrong with that, but our worship is Trinitarian, and we, we have a Trinitarian consciousness and understanding. So. Then paragraphs three and four deal with prayer. And in, as you 
have seen in other chap- in chapters of the Confession, m- many things that are in the Confession are um, written to correct errors that they were dealing with at the time and errors that are still with us, and even more errors have cropped up since then. So you'll find that from, from time to time. Like um, paragraph four, you know, praying for the dead. <clears throat> So paragraphs three and four deal with prayer, and then paragraph five is a, is a big one in that it speaks about the uh, elements of worship, the elements of worship. Six, paragraph six talks about the locale or the place, and that is heavily connected to John 4.21, which is the first scripture reference mentioned here at the bottom in the footnotes of that paragraph. So the locale. And then paragraph 7 and 8 deal with the, the, the pattern or the day or the time, the day or the time or the recurring pattern of uh, not worship in general, because that's every day, but, but, but public worship. So we'll go back then to paragraph 1. And I mentioned that it's rooted in chapter 1 of the Confession of Faith. Naturally, all the, all the doctrines of Scripture are are intertwined, and then so you have you know, systematic theology which ties things together. But in paragraph one of chapter one of the confession, it says the Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge of faith and obedience. And although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God, so as to leave in an inexcusable, they are inexcusable. They are not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and His will which is necessary unto salvation. But not only salvation, then, when you come to this chapter here that we're studying, not only salvation, but also worship, the light of uh, how, how, what is the acceptable way to worship this God? We know a lot of the unacceptable ways which man de- 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 uh, devises from, from himself, you know, throughout history. You have Nature worship, animism, I mean, the list is very long. Idol worship, worshiping this, the sun, moon, and stars, uh, worshiping objects, statues, um, and all the rest. It's just, uh, as Calvin said, an idol factory. Man's heart is an idol factory. So the question is, then, what is the acceptable way to worship the true God? And paragraph one just says that he is the one who institutes the true worship of God. So that... Revelation, so that the worship of God is, is revealed in Scripture. And if it's revealed, then it's limited. And if it's limited, well, then obviously it's regulated by Scripture. So these are important terms I'm throwing out at you right now just for you to catch and think about as we get started here. How do, you, how, how, how do you worship God? God is unseen, so he's unknown unless he reveals himself. How are you to respond to this God? How are you to worship God? Well, you would expect that he will tell you how to do that as well. What's the option? He reveals himself but doesn't tell you how to worship him. Think about that. It's not a, not a very attractive option, and it's, it doesn't fit with a... God who would reveal himself but not tell you how to worship him. But 
again, if, it, if it's revealed, if it's revealed by this God, then, you know, terms like limited, uh, uh, prescribed, right? You would expect that. If it's revealed, then it's got to be prescribed. If God reveals truth about himself, then we don't have the option to play around with that truth and, you know, shape it and form it however we want it to, to look like. It's revealed. It's something that you, you take. And so if the worship of God is also revealed with that, then it's, it's limited to that. It's prescribed by that revelation. It's a rule. Same with chapter 1. Scripture is a revelation and a rule. It's the rule of life. It's, it's, it's a revelation of God, but it tells you how to live your life. It gives you rules. Um, and it's like a ruler, a measuring stick to, by which to measure your life. Um, and so it is with, with worship. It's revealed, therefore it's regulated. If it's regulated, it's limited, it's prescribed. And so when we talk, for example, about um, the, we talk about the regulative principle, you don't want to think about that as just something like theologians just added to scripture, you know, this, this thing that they just added to scripture. Um, it's just, a, it's a, it's a truth. It's a, it's a, it's like a natural conclusion that if God reveals himself, he also reveals the way that he is to be worshiped. And then that that worship is limited or regulated, limited to that, regulated by that. And you find that it is prescribed in scripture and in the, in the succeeding paragraph here, you notice, what is it, um, in paragraph 5, it actually gives you the elements. Aside from talking about the spirit, which, which is in the earlier paragraphs, in paragraph 5, you have the elements. The reading of the scriptures, the reading of scripture, the reading of God's word. This is God's voice. You read it. You read it out loud. You preach it. You, you proclaim it. And you, on the other end, you hear it. You hear the word of God. You teach and admonish one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. It's an element, isn't it? An element of worship that God has revealed, therefore prescribed. Uh, singing with grace in our hearts to the Lord. Thankfully, we have many compositions to sing. If it was just the psalms, that would still be many, but we have many more than that, although that's disputed by some. You know, nevertheless, we have spiritual songs <clears throat> And also the uh, public worship, which is now envisioned in that statement, is also the administration of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Uh, all of these things, notice, all of these things, these are all parts of religious worship to be performed in obedience to him with understanding, faith, reverence, and godly fear. Uh, and as Waldron points out in his article on this chapter, that you know, naturally there are other things as well that are revealed in Scripture, uh, <clears throat> like... Meditation, like memorizing God's word, hiding it in your heart. You have that in Psalm 119. So not, not every single thing is listed here. Um, holy and uh, God-honoring discussions about God's word to stimulate one another and things like that. So back to paragraph one then. 
So the light of nature shows us that there is a God. It doesn't quote from the Romans 1 in the footnotes, but you know that Romans 1 talks about this in verses 19 through 21, that what was known about God is clearly seen, even his eternal power. And Godhead, so that they are without excuse. And one of these paragraphs mentioned that they were, are without excuse. But the light of nature shows us that there is a God. <clears throat> and the lordship and the sovereignty overall is a, is a, is a, a, you know, it's a, it's kind of a natural conclusion that you, a person should make just on the basis of natural revelation, on the basis of creation, that <clears throat> the, nothing operates without an operator. No, nothing, nothing holds to a course without a, a governor so that there must be a God who, who governs everything and who keeps the stars in place and keeps the planets in their orbits and you know a hundred other conclusions that you should make when you look out there and you see this world unless your eyes are completely blinded to that and you are deceived by some uh, <clears throat> by the, uh, the world's view of, of nature so, so you see all of this that he's just good and does good to all <clears throat> and the conclusion that you make, you draw is that well, I should fear, fear this God, love and praise him and call upon him and ask him to, to, to reveal himself to me, that would be the natural the good response, the right response to reveal himself to me and this is all Romans chapter 1 <clears throat> but instead Men turn away from him and uh, invent their own worldview and, uh, and draw their own conclusions, okay, and live in the darkness of those conclusions. But the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself <clears throat> and so limited to his own revealed will. So let's just look there at the one reference they give, which is Deuteronomy 12.32. Deuteronomy 12.32. <clears throat> And this is just one example of many, but it's a good one, and it suffices. Deuteronomy twelve thirty-two. Whatever, <clears throat> and the 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 context of this statement is in this chapter that of the centralized worship in the Old Testament, the the place which God ordains, verse 5, but you shall seek the Lord at the place which the Lord your God will choose from all your tribes to establish his name there, verse 5, and for his dwelling, and there you shall come and bring your burnt offerings. Verse 7, also you and your households. um, Verse 8, you shall not do at all what we are doing here today, every man doing whatever is right in his own eyes. And It's a great chapter, but at the end of the chapter it says, whatever I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it nor take away from it. So that's the principle that is being cited here in the confession, in that statement, but the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshiped according to the imagination and devices of men, which we've been talking about, and then the suggestions of Satan 
under any visible representations or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. And so the, the, the addition of this statement here, which may seem odd to you, um, is not by the suggestions of Satan. Well, it takes you back to the Garden of Eden, right? God is there with his, his holy offspring, the, the couple that he created, I mean, and, uh, and there is Satan trying to disrupt their worship and deceive them, which he did. So <clears throat> perhaps you could even include in there, you know, something like um, Saul s- s- seeking out the witch at Endor. You know, this idea comes into his mind to do that. You know, where, where did it come from? Uh, that's a likely source. So you have, by the imagination and devices of men, the suggestions of Satan, three, under any visible representations, which refers to idolatry. <clears throat> Old Testament, especially, is uh, filled with passages that condemn idolatry and even make fun of it and make a mockery of it, which is what it deserves. And then, of course, you have that in the New Testament as well, but just kind of bare references, except in the book of Acts, where the apostles actually were in cities where they were confronting idol worship, such as in Ephesus. So that's number three. Under any visible representations or any other way, in any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. Let's just look at uh, Jeremiah 10, 7. See what we have here. Jeremiah ten seven. <clears throat> Jeremiah ten six and seven. There is no one like you, O Lord. You are great, and great is your name in might. Who would not fear you, O King of the nations? Indeed, it is your due. For among all the wise men of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. But they are altogether stupid and foolish in their discipline of delusion. Their idol is wood, beaten silver. And you see, he goes on to castigate the idol worship there. But the Lord, verse 10... 10, is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King, and his wrath, the, at his wrath, the earth quakes, and the nations cannot endure his indignation. Verse 12, it is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom, and by his understanding he has stretched out the heavens. When he utters his voice, there is a tumult of waters in the heavens. And he causes the clouds to ascend from the end of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain. So in cultures where you have uh, actual idolatry, I remember the time when I was in Japan and uh, how I learned, you know, seeing how the missionaries there would preach a lot from the Old Testament on the subject of idolatry, because that it, there, that's an important part of uh, preparing the way for the gospel. So let me just uh, mention some points that 
Sam Waldron makes, he's the author of the chapter 22 on religious worship and the Sabbath day, where he, uh, he begins his chapter pointing out uh, the two main ideas in chapter 22, which are the, uh, the regulative principle or the principle or the regulation of, of divine worship, and then uh, the Sabbath. So he does mention, I'll just mention these, four biblical arguments for the Puritan regulative principle of worship may be presented, because they taught this quite distinctly. Whereas um, in our day, it's, it's uh, somewhat you know, lacking in general teaching in God's churches. But he says, first, it is the prerogative of God alone to determine the terms on which sinners may approach him in worship. Let me read it again. I'm going to ask you, is that a reasonable conclusion? First, it is the prerequisite of God alone to determine the terms on which sinners may approach him in worship. Yeah, that's reasonable. So it follows from what I was building uh, when I started this morning. <clears throat> and he quotes Bannerman. Uh, second, the introduction of extra-biblical practices into worship inevitably tends to nullify and undermine God's appointed worship. All right, that's reasonable. All I'm asking is that's a reasonable conclusion that uh, you might argue with it, but uh, I mean... It's a reasonable statement that he uses words like inevitably tends. He's not saying it always does, but he's saying it inevitably tends. It's just another one of the arguments to to support what we have in Scripture. Third, the wisdom of Christ and the sufficiency of the Scriptures is called into question by the addition of unappointed elements into worship. Again, that's a fair and reasonable conclusion. The wisdom of Christ and the sufficiency of Scripture is called into question by the addition of unappointed elements into worship. So if God has already revealed um, how to worship him, then, then the scripture is not sufficient to take us uh, in, that, in that area of practical worship. And fourth, and this is prob- probably the, the, the major main point is that the Bible explicitly condemns all worship that is not commanded by God. And you have a string of texts here. Leviticus 10, verses 1 through 3. Deuteronomy 17, 3. Deuteronomy 4, 2. Deuteronomy 12, 29 through 32. Joshua 1, 7, 23, 6 through 8. Matthew 15, 13. Colossians 2, 20 through 23. And he says three of these passages deserve special comment. And he mentions Deuteronomy 12, 29 through 32. The verse we just read. Uh, Colossians 2, 23 condemns what we may be literally translated as will worship. And then Leviticus 10, verses 1 through 13, the account of what happened to Nadab and Abihu. So, just thought I'd mention that. It's a helpful resource there. Uh, chapter, paragraph one. There we have it. Okay, then, paragraph two. Religious worship is to be given to God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And to Him alone, not to angels, saints, 
or any other creature since the fall, not without a mediator, nor in the mediation of any other but Christ alone. So you have a few, a few points here, a few main points. The first is the Trinitarian worship and him alone. Worship is always, if it's worship of God, it, always, it has to be exclusive. And um, the exclusivity is found in the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. The exclusive soul worship of God. Exclusive with n- no other particular. And it also must be Trinitarian. And just for example, in uh, Paul's great benediction in Second Thessalonians, uh, Second uh, Corinthians thirteen fourteen, which I'm thankful that I'm not the only one who has noted over the years that this is Paul's great Trinitarian benediction. I've seen it stated by others in reading here and there. But Paul says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Again, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. You think about that for a moment. He's not saying that grace is only attributed to Christ or love to God, and God has to be Father here, and the fellowship only to the Holy Spirit. It's not that he's saying that, but he is saying, though, that these are prominent, prominent things with each person. And, and other texts, you know, come to mind right away. For example, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians chapter, um, is it... Uh, Eight, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet he became poor for our sakes that we, um, uh, that we um, in our poverty might become rich. So the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, just reflecting on, on uh, the grace part of Christ coming into the world. It doesn't mean that, that love is not attributed to Christ, but it's just that that is a feature that comes in our worship when we worship the triune God, that's one feature with regard to the Lord Jesus Christ that is prominent, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, because it takes in his entire incarnation and coming into the world. The love of God reminds you of what verse? God, John 3.16. You know, it just reminds you of that. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So, again, it's not that the Bible doesn't say that Jesus has love or that God doesn't have grace, but it, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a prominent feature that is reflected in our worship. And of course, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, that usually is the feature that is um, associated with the Holy Spirit, because you have spirit, spirit, spiritual beings, spiritual beings do what together? Spiritual beings... Interact, yeah, interact, commune. And that, the confession quotes, you know, from John, John 4, 24, God is spirit, small s. Hold on. Yeah. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. So, if you notice that in the, in this Bible, and I think in most Bibles, it will be a small s. 
and not a capital S. Although the margin does say or spirit, but that it makes a lot more sense to, to call it spirit. He's talking about, he's not talking about the person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. That wouldn't make sense. God is the Holy Spirit. So God is spirit, but because of the second phrase, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit. You know, read it together, you know, one breath. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit. So in other words, you have a spirit, God is a spirit. We're spiritual beings. We commune on the level of, of, of the spirit. And hence, as we find, the third person of the Trinity is the Holy Spirit with a capital S. And so that's the meaning of fellowship of the Holy Spirit in uh, 2 Corinthians 13, 14. So religious worship is to be given to God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And if you, if you go through and you, you isolate the, the, the hymns in our hymn book and, and any other, other hymn books, if you have a number of them, uh, you'll find you know, dozens and dozens of Trinitarian hymns where the first line is a, is a hymn to the Father, the second line to the Son, and the third to the Spirit. So there you have it. I mean, that's a good practice. And so it's a practice that we, we might, or a discipline that we might develop in our lives to try to explore it a little bit. <clears throat> try it. <laughs> in other words, try it if you're not accustomed to doing that. I need to do it more. So that's the first thing that's stated in the paragraph two is that this Trinitarian element of worship. And then on the negative side, not to angels, saints, or any other creatures, worship of angels is something that you see in the Bible. Worship of saints is something that developed in church history, Roman Catholic Church, and, uh, and of course the, the reformers and in, those, in that period of time, 17th century, 16th and 17th century, they were, you know, they were writing about that, and that's much needed, needed today. So angels, saints, or any other creatures. And then the third part of this paragraph, then, is important. The mediator. So worship since the fall cannot be accomplished without a mediator. Jesus uh, said, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And 1 Timothy 2, 5, which both are mentioned here. 1 Timothy 2, 5, um, there's only one, there's one God and one mediator between God and man. So let's uh, get a few more minutes here. But just to take the, the next two paragraphs, and then we'll close. All right, sorry for pushing through here. But paragraph three and four is on prayer, something we always need help with. So prayer with thanksgiving, being one part of natural worship, is by God required of all men. The, um, you might wonder about the, the natural worship part. But the statement required of all men explains it, I think. Explains it. Uh, prayer is required of all men. In other words, that all men owe a debt of gratitude 
toward God, which is something that Paul deals with in Romans chapter 1, right? Neither were they thankful. Um, so even if you have, you know, even if you have an unbeliever who doesn't believe in Christ, but acknowledges God uh, as providing even for food and temporal blessings, that's certainly better. It's certainly better, right? That's a, a start, we might say. They still need the gospel, but... Uh, and mentions Psalm 95. Oh, come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms, for the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods, in whose hands are the depths of the earth. The peaks of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for it was he who made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. You know, there's a, there's a, there's a universalism in that psalm, as you have in, in other psalms, which call upon the nations to worship God. You have that here as well. Uh, and in verse 6, you see the, the, the twofold reference to the Lord is our maker, that's God as the creator, and then the people of Israel are mentioned in verse 7. So both are mentioned there. The, the race of men in total and God's people. So they're all called upon to worship God with prayer and thanksgiving, which is what the, all the confession is saying there. But that it may be accepted, so it's good for men to be thankful to the God of creation and acknowledge him, but in order for it to be accepted, it says, it is to be made in the name of the Son, in the Son, by the help of the Spirit, according to his will, with understanding, reverence, humility, fervency, faith, love, and perseverance, and when with others in a known tongue. And he quotes 1 Corinthians 14, 16, and 17, interestingly. <clears throat> so here you just have some, some, some words that uh, open up what prayer is, uh, or how, how we should pray, um, Understanding, pray with understanding. How, how can we pray properly unless we understand the God to whom we're praying, the issue we're praying about? What is an, what is an appropriate prayer, for example? Understanding. Reverence. Reverence, which in the Bible is sometimes translated for the, the actual word fear, which has a sense of reverence, but it also has a sense of fear. And the word fear is used in another one of these paragraphs, uh, paragraph five. Faith, reverence, and godly fear. So again, it's not, it's not scripture language or scripture words that we're exegeting here, but just the use of English words, which are useful. Understanding, reverence, so that we wouldn't speak arrogantly to God. We wouldn't throw questions at him that you might throw to a person. But you, but you approach him as a, as a great king and naturally humility. And yet, because prayer is asking God for things, we can ask, we can ask fervently. We can ask with fervency. If we, if we, if we ask with understanding, uh, and it's something that we desire and it's something that we believe 
would please God to ask for it, you know, you can ask for it with, with, with fervency. Um, and by the way, you don't always have to say if it's, if it's your will. That, that's your disposition, but when you're asking something fervently, you can just ask for it. Just ask for it. Uh, and then faith, naturally. Love for God, it's all ties together with reverence. I, I revere him, I respect him, um, because he loves me, and I love him. And uh, ask with perseverance, okay? Keep on asking. And, and the one with others in an own tongue, of course. And then finally, paragraph four. It's as far as I hope to get today. Paragraph four, prayer is to be made for things lawful, and for all sorts of men living. That's based on 1 Timothy chapter 2, Kings, and the, the, the idea of all sorts of men. Um, it's not talking about uh, like skin color or race, although that's certainly part of it, but, but in, uh, based on the, the texts that are used here, 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2. Prayer is to be made for all things lawful, for all sorts of men living, or that shall live hereafter. Reference to 2 Samuel 7.29. Now therefore may it please you to bless the house of your servant, that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing may the house of your servant be blessed forever. So that's the sense that they're thinking of. Sometimes if you read a statement in the confession and you're not sure what it's talking about, the, the reference will give you a key as to just what they're thinking about. Um, it's a general prayer. In fact, I'll be talking in this sermon this morning about you know, universal prayers and particular prayers, because the Lord's Prayer is pretty particular. Um, but I think that's all they're referring to there. But not for the dead, okay? 2 Samuel 12, 21 through 23. Not for the dead. Nor for those of whom it may be known that they have sinned the sin unto death. 1 John five sixteen, And um, they just stated it, okay? And that's something we find ourselves dealing with very often, if at all. I don't know that I've ever had that experience in all the years I've been a Christian. So let's thank the Lord together and just uh, ask him to help us today to worship him in spirit and truth here together. Our God and Father, we thank you so much for the confession in this great chapter. Lord, thank you for the encouragement that it has been to us, Lord, to think about it. And uh, be with us, Lord, and be with our spirits and uh, draw them out so that they may reach out to you, Lord, in the company of your people today. Help us to be a blessing to one another in Christ's name. Amen.